Hello everyone, welcome back. Uh, bit of a late start tonight, that's okay. Um, I feel I feel a little bit like the opposite of Scott Adams. He does this broadcast in the morning on, I think, Periscope, where he, you know, sits down with news and makes a cup of coffee and he tells everyone, you know, time for a the simultaneous sip and they all drink coffee together and everyone laughs into the morning while Scott Adams does his typical spiel. I feel like the opposite. I'm like, oh, it's freaking late and I've got my coffee going here, uh, my simultaneous sip here late at night. The show must go on. Uh, honestly, you know, the the reason for a lot of my fatigue is, is kind of cool. Well, part of it is, you know, so our, our daughter is um, almost eight months old, actually, and she just started crawling, which is a whole new dynamic. I had no idea how, <laughs> you know, when you think about them crawling, it's like, oh, it's cool, you know, they're, they, they're over there and they'll come to you, right? And then once they actually start crawling, it makes you completely rethink your whole house from like the floor up three feet, like the, the, that baseboard, that three feet area from the floor up, you look at it completely differently. You know, all of a sudden she's chewing on an HDMI cord from a, a extra Xbox cord. And just the other day, you know, she's kind of sitting playing in the living room and kind of walk around and she's just hitting the button on the Xbox and it's like, oh my God. Okay, so we have to completely rethink the entire layout. Um, so it's kind of fun that she's crawling around, you know, but it, it does it does drain you just constantly having to go and 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 check on her. But it's but it's super fun. And but the other thing is that she's going through a growth spurt, so she's like hungry and eating a lot and wakes up a lot at night. But then she's kind of on the tail end of that and she's also waking up but like just wants to hang out. Like she's like that friend that would always talk you into doing irresponsible things during finals week back in college. Like she'll just cry and cry and you go in there and she's as soon as you walk in, she just looks up. She's like, Hey man, what's up? I just wanted to see if you wanted to go to Walmart. You know, it's two in the morning. Come on, man. You can, you can skip class. It's fine. Just email the professor, tell him you're sick. Like that's where I feel like my daughter is right now. Like as soon as I walk in there, She'll, it's like, hey, are you okay? She reaches up, she wants to grab my hand, you know, and you pick her up and offer a bottle. She's like, no, I'm not hungry. I just wanted to chill. Like, I, just, I figured you didn't have anything else going on. And so then she'll babble to herself for a while, but as soon as you put her back down in the crib, it's just back to, ah, dude, blowing up the phone. Man, I thought we were going to hang out tonight. Dude, I need a ride, man. Um, so that's fun. So she, she wakes us up to hang out 36 times a night, but... It is what it is, right? It's it's the the joys of parenting. So we're we're both pretty tired, but it's I guess it's kind of a fun kind of tired. It's fun to figure that stuff out. So anyway, so we're gonna power through together again. I, I have my my coffee going, so we'll see. Hopefully, I'll stay awake and I won't completely uh, drone on and on and in my delirium here. So we're gonna do a couple of things tonight. We're gonna get into briefly about Kobe Bryant, some football stuff. Touch on impeachment, that's a mess. Democratic primaries, a few interesting things going on there. One main, like, kind of revelation that the New York Times helped me solve last Sunday. Uh, I wish that they would have released their endorsement thing before my live stream last Sunday. So I could have talked about it then, but anyway, we'll get to that. And uh, this kind of interesting thing that happened with Oprah that's funny, worth talking about. And then at the end, we're going to talk about this thing called concept creep that plays into some of the stuff we've 
discussed before in terms of strategic silence, kind of the mental, or not mental, but linguistic gymnastics that we see happening in terms of definitions of words changing. And then at the very end, we're going to get into, there's a giveaway. My wife had this super cool idea. Always marry someone smarter than you. Um, and if possible, hotter than you, uh, outkick the coverage, right? That's what, uh, what's wrong with the, the guy is who says that the sports guy who got in trouble, uh, Travis, Clay Travis, always outkick the coverage. Um, in my case, I married both. So she's smarter than me and more attractive. Uh, not that that's a super difficult to attain feat, but anyway, she had the idea to do a giveaway to uh, unashamedly try and grow the subscribership on the channel. So we'll get into the details of that at the end. So if you just are listening to this at a later point in time, just skip skip ahead through all of my tired ramblings and you can get to the details on the, uh, on the giveaway. So anyway, so that's where we're going. So first, Kobe... Uh, Kobe Bryant died yesterday. Obviously, it's you know been all over the news. Super tragic. The dude was 41 years old, and you know we we shouldn't gloss over there. And I think the the news media has done a pretty good job of this of not just making it about Kobe Bryant, but his 13 year old daughter also it seems now there is a total of nine people. So the pilot plus eight other people, um, and they're saying, look, this is a tragedy. It's not just about Kobe. So good good for the media and covering or covering this well. Um, they're also investigating. It seems like there was some issue where they weren't supposed to be flying, uh, that there was a some fog issue and no one was cleared to fly maybe, and so they're investigating it. Uh, but one of the things that I kind of took away from it as I was reading about it yesterday was, you know, they're talking about the family and his, his daughter, Gianna, who was there, 13-year-old, and the, his youngest daughter, Capri, is like the same age as our daughter, I think within a few weeks. And so I'm reading it, I'm looking over at her, messing with my Xbox, right? And it's just like, I can't imagine, you know, be, her being that young and losing me or my wife, and, you know, and potentially an older sibling. And, you know, for us, we're watching like, you know, r r these retweets of Kobe Bryant's, uh, you know, Dear Basketball video that he made whenever he retired. And, you know, old clips of him talking about stuff that's pretty inspirational. And it's like mourning this athlete, mourning his daughter, you know, and the future that she won't have. You know, but Kobe's daughter, Capri, who's so young, she's going to grow up and mourn, you know. For her, it's going to be just mourning the dad she didn't get to know and the sister she didn't get to know. Uh, and so I think it's just worth remembering that, that these are people, you know, all of these people. And they affect people's lives differently. And we do mourn him as this basketball great, but at the same time, his daughter is just going to grow up and go, I don't care what he did. I, I just wish I would have known my dad and my sister. Um, you know, as soon as I, I read the age of his youngest daughter, I like got up and just went and picked up my daughter and was just holding her and gave her some kisses for as long as she would allow me to. Uh, but super sad stuff. And then the other thing is just bizarre about it, the helicopter crash generally as I was looking this up, I'm like, who dies in a helicopter crash? Not not as like a an insult thing, but it's just like that's such a bizarre circumstance. It's, it's just not normal. And it's like something like barely over 100 fatalities from helicopter crashes in the U.S. every year. So these nine deaths will constitute like, you know, 9% of the deaths total or maybe 8% total of the average U.S. deaths. It's just really bizarre. Um Anyway, super sad. So we, we mourn that for sure. Keep the fa all these families in your thoughts and prayers for sure. 
Um, and I don't say that superficially. As I said it, I'm like, crap, that's so trite. But at the same time, I mean it. You know, if that's if if that's your belief system and that's something that's meaningful to you, then yeah, you should do that because we do want to mourn whenever people are suffering and people are sad. Um, for sure, whatever that looks like for you, uh, to at least acknowledge their pain. Um, so that's what I mean there. Anyway, okay. So to another sport, uh, football. So we got to talk Super Bowl for a minute. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge this uh, pro football talk dude, Mike Florio. You know, on a in an interview or podcast just the other day, basically suggesting that the 49ers defense take cheap cheap shots on Patrick Mahomes. You know, he's like, well, you know, they they might lose 15 yards here or there. Or, half the distance to the goal, but it'd be worth it to send a message. And it's like, really, dude? Like, he came in with an injured ankle, you know? He had that really scary knee injury. He's been getting beat up since our offensive line has been injured this season. And so he's been taking hits every single game, basically. It's like, you're going to really say that? Like, my thought was, you know, we have enough over-the-top, divisive, like, pointlessly inflammatory rhetoric in our cultural vernacular today anyway, we don't need more of it. We don't need you advising the Niners to take cheap shots on Patrick Mahomes um, just because you think it'd make for good football and send a message. So anyway, that was that was bullcrap, and I just have to acknowledge it. It's like, dude, we have enough, all right? Let's just enjoy the football game without encouraging dirty football. Uh, in terms of predictions, man, I feel like every single thing that I read is either going for the Niners or going for the Chiefs, so it's going to be a close one. Um, Vegas seems to favor KC, uh, but, but we'll see what happens. But I, I, I'm not going to make predictions. I'm not a pro football guy um, or not qualified to make those those types of analysis. But just logistically, for next Sunday's live stream, I guess this coming Sunday's live stream, um, what I'll probably do is record it before the Super Bowl. Um hopefully early afternoon to get plenty of time to get all that set up before the game. I'm just, I don't want to have the illusion that I'm going to be able to, regardless of what happens, whether the Chiefs win or the Chiefs lose, that I'm just going to then go and do a, a live stream and talk about the the impeachment trial in the Senate. It's just not going to happen, um, especially if they lose, because I'll just be just... Just so it'll it'll be bad. It'll be bad. Like it's already not. You know, I, I'm 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 not saying that I have the most energy and entertainment quality, but me after the Chiefs lose, if they lost the Super Bowl, you know, um, knock wood, uh, that'd be bad. And then if they win, I'm not I'm not gonna want to come and talk to you guys about impeachment. I'll just be sitting here just grinning uh, at my phone for an hour and a half. So anyway, we're gonna aim for before the game early afternoon. We'll talk about so. The Republicans are going to wrap up their um, de- defense this week. There'll be a vote on witnesses, all of the the mayhem that's going to go into that, and we'll talk about that. Any other things that come up with the primaries, we'll see what the latest uh, 30,000 attacks on Bernie Sanders are. Um, and then I might do one uh, sometime in the middle of the week next week. I need to decide. There's just a lot of stuff happening. Um, but anyway, for next Sunday, before the Super Bowl, I just wanted to put that out there. And also, go Chiefs. Okay, so getting into the kind of some of the substance here, there's a few kind of briefings I want to go over before getting to the stuff at the end. I just had to include this. 
I, this is one of those, so sometimes I'll find these articles and I'm like, crap, I don't, some people are going to cover this before I get a chance to talk about it, you know, and sometimes I luck out and like people don't talk about something like this that I just think is hilarious. I'm like, yes, I get to talk about it without worrying about comparisons to other people. Maybe others have talked about this, but I haven't heard it. So Oprah got in trouble for a book recommendation she had for a book club. So remember, Oprah is, you know, a pretty, I mean, everyone loves Oprah, right? You know, you get a humpback whale and you get, everyone gets humpback whales, you know. Uh, Everyone loves Oprah. I mean, there was talk of Oprah, people wanting her to run for president in 2020 against Donald Trump, I think maybe two years ago because of some speech she gave. And they were like, this is her gearing up for 2020. Now, the same people who said that were also saying that Michael Avenatti, which, you know, Stormy Daniels' lawyer, was going to be a real contender, and that dude's, like, actually in jail right now. But anyway, the left loves Oprah. I mean, everyone loves Oprah. You know, she's, she's, she's Oprah. Uh, but she's in trouble. So she's now joining Ellen DeGeneres in the insufficiently woke. You know, she's a, a fallen hero of the left, so to speak. So Huffington Post reporting. Oprah Winfrey's latest Oprah's Book Club pick, American Dirt, has social media and news outlets arguing over whether the book is an extraordinary piece of work or cringeworthy and real problematic. Whenever they break out the word problematic, you know it's going to be good. Because everything's problematic. On Tuesday, Winfrey touted the Janine Cummins novel as a story that changed the way I see what it means to be a migrant in a whole new way. In a, in a video of her endorsement, the media mogul said, I was shook up. It woke me up. And I feel that everybody who reads this book is actually going to be immersed in the experience of what it means to be a migrant on the run for freedom. So I want you to read. Considered one of the most anticipated books of 2020, American Dirt follows Lydia Quixano Perez, a woman who runs a bookstore in Acapulco, Mexico, when the boss of the city's newest drug cartel becomes the subject of a tell-all profile by Lydia's journalist husband, the couple and their son Luca find themselves on the run and become migrants. According to many reviews, the book's central problem is brownface. It's not a problem when uh, Justin Trudeau actually does that, but this book, it, it, it is a problem. Um, some critics have drawn attention to Cummins' identity. The author, who is Irish Puerto Rican heritage, describes herself on Twitter as Irlandasia Baruca Persona, but she has also identified herself as white. Uh, and people are questioning the accuracy of her portrayal of Mexican immigrants. Latina or no, Cummins certainly isn't Mexican, Mexican, or Chicana. That's a problem, writer David Bowles explains in a Medium post, where he also calls a novel harmful appropriating inaccurate trauma porn melodrama. That's a lot. That's a word salad. Bull's take echoes much of what Latinx Miriam Gerbo wrote in a piece titled Pendeja You Ain't Steinbeck, My Bronca with Fake-Ass Social Justice Literature about Cummins' nova, novel. Gerba claims Cummins' quote, clumsy and distorted spectacle, end quote, is another example of a white writer appropriating genius works by people of color and repackaging them for the mass racially colorblind consumption. So, basically, this book, so, okay, just to clarify, let's give a recap, all right? It's been a while since I started talking about this, but let's recap. So, this is a book recommended by Oprah, Hero of the left, who they're talking about 
she should run for president, like five minutes ago, about that's written to garner sympathy for migrant migrants, right? People who want to come to the country illegally. They're migrants now. We'll get to that later. Um, Oprah saying, this woke me up. You have to read this. The person who wrote it is half Puerto Rican, and it's not woke enough. This book is not woke enough. So that's amazing. And I haven't seen anything about Oprah responding to this nonsense, but it's humorous nonetheless. You know, there's this ancient Egyptian symbol called the Ouroboros. It's a, just a picture of a snake eating its tail. And I, I think about that whenever I see something like this, or the attacks on J.K. Rowling not that long ago, or whenever they got mad at Ellen, you know, Stephen King got in hot water for saying art should be judged on its merit. What a controversial statement, I know. Um, but this, this snake eating its tail, you know, the left eating their own, turning guns on their own. I said that after Ellen got in trouble for saying that we should be nice to people, even those we disagree with. I'm like, look, we are in a new phase of this culture war where the left is saying, okay, we're not just targeting those people, but anyone that is, anyone on our team is also fair game if they don't toe the line. So uh, American Dirt is not woke enough, and Oprah's in, Oprah has now been canceled as a result. Of course, Oprah's uncancelable, but it's still hilarious that that happened. So shame on her for wanting people to be more sympathetic to uh, migrants. Anyway, okay, so the Democratic primaries, this thing is a mess. It is, like, I'm not even, like, that. that's just a, that is my actual analysis of where the primaries are right now. Like, it's not some just throwaway line. It is actually a mess. Um, so we'll, because it's a mess, we're just going to run through some bullet points on where the candidates are and, you know, kind of end with the missing puzzle piece of Elizabeth Warren, the New York Times Finally helped me understand the fixation on Elizabeth Warren. Thank you, New York Times. Never thought I'd say that, but uh, that's what we're going to end with. So we're just going to go through these candidates. But one thing I will say is the, all the cards are on the table right now in terms of where the establishment is, where the media is, where the party is generally. It's all out there right now. And, you know, war is here. Like, it's this thing is getting ugly real fast. Um, and I think, and I think I understand why too. So we'll talk about that. But anyway, ever since that, you know, Warren talked about, oh, Bernie was saying a woman could never be president. Uh, and then that totally hack CNN, uh, debate, the last one they had in Iowa, um, that it, that's the moment that is the shift in this primary. Okay. It just is. And I think that what's happening now is going to define the next couple months of this thing. So anyway, so we'll just go kind of down the line. Obviously, if I'm not talking about Tom Steyer or Tulsi Gabbard or, you know, Michael Bennett or anything like that, it's because they don't matter. So I'm only going to talk about the ones who are kind of, you know, still relevant. Uh, so Andrew Yang, dude's going to be in the next debate. He had kind of a recent bump in polls. He's met the criteria. He's going to be in the debate in New Hampshire on the 7th, um, which is uh, good for him. And, but what I will say is, you know, the media, there's have there's been a total blackout on Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard. The only coverage has been bad coverage. You know, there was a thing that went around about how the MSNBC, I think it was, had a picture of the candidates up there. And for Andrew Yang, they it was like some, it looked like a stock photo of just some random Asian dude they put up there and said that was Andrew Yang. And they like leave him out of other infographs. 
And then I think their picture of Amy Klobuchar was actually, um, I can't remember what her name was now. It was one of the other candidates that dropped pretty early. Uh, anyway, so th- the media coverage of this thing has been terrible generally. But so ever since Yang qualified for this debate in February, the only coverage I've seen of him has been, hey, Andrew Yang qualified for this debate. Also, here's some horrible things about Andrew Yang. Uh, the most recent one, there was a piece that CNN did about how he was, <laughs> in all fairness, this should be criticized, but I think it should be criticized anytime any person does it, left, right, center. Um, but how he sang it, <laughs> he put on the, the robe and everything and went and sang in the choir at a black church in Iowa. And they were, the I think the tagline was, Andrew Yang did this, but not everyone said amen. You know, and it's like, you know, everyone does it. I don't like it whenever anyone does, you know, the pandering is so, it's like it's necessary, but I hate it at the same time. Um, but they were, CNN is criticizing Yang for that. But he's picked up some high-level endorsements. You know, Dave Chappelle's actually campaigning for him. I think Norm MacDonald is going to bring Andrew Yang on the road with him or do some stuff with uh, Andrew Yang. So these comedians that I, I respect a lot, they like Andrew Yang, which understandably so. I think he's probably one of the most, if not the most likable candidate in recent history, in my opinion. It just sucks his main policy, UBI, is such a disaster, like actually dangerous. But he's a likable guy. I can see why these these comedians would like him um, if they don't understand the, the policy implications. Um, Donald Glover, I think, is like someone who works for his campaign. So he's picked up some, you know, some fairly big, I think, uh, people who are endorsing him and campaigning for him. So he's going to be the next debate. I'm not sure it's going to matter, to be honest. But if he does start to gain some momentum, then I probably will do a, a whole thing talking about UBI and some of the other stuff there. But generally right now, he's going to be the next debate. Not sure it's going to matter. But, you know, Tom Steyer is going to be the next debate. Tom Steyer's not going anywhere. So anyway, so Biden, he's still, you know, doing well enough in the polls. You know, even though, you know, there's like a 30% chance that he died in 2019 and the DNC has just been doing this really elaborate weekend at Bernie's um, remake or something, homage maybe. But, you know, he's... He's pretty durable, it seems like. Now, again, even though he's doing well in the polls, I I go back to what Scott Adams has said, which is, have you ever met someone excited about Joe Biden? The answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. No, you haven't. I know that you haven't because no one has. Um, And so his poll numbers, I think, might be, like, it might be providing a, a false narrative or a false sense of security where people are just going, uh, him, I recognize him. And whenever it comes to actually people going out and voting, that he won't do as well. I think he's leading in Iowa right now. If he wins Iowa and New Hampshire, he'll he'll walk away with this thing. But Bernie's doing really well in Iowa. Bernie's leading New Hampshire. Um, so I, I don't think Biden is as durable as he seems like. I think he's also going to get hit by this impeachment thing. I think it's going to hurt his campaign as well. Um, especially the focus on Hunter Biden um, and Burisma and stuff. I just, I just think there's no way that this thing in the Senate doesn't, doesn't hurt him a little bit. Um, so there's that. Also, Kamala Harris recently said that she would consider endorsing Biden, which, you know, is another way of saying, I'm considering asking Joe Biden to make me his running mate if he gets the nomination. Um, so that's kind of funny. You know, it's the same way, you know, with, uh, Julian Castro doing that with Elizabeth Warren, right? You know, it's, 
hey, I could be your, it's, you know, it's their, they're campaigning for a VP by doing that. But anyway, so that that's where things are with Biden. He's also taken some hits from Bernie's campaign. Um, Bernie's opened up the guns on him. So let's talk about Bernie. So Bernie's seen a huge surge in the polls in Iowa, in New Hampshire, in national polls generally. And this has happened basically since Warren kneecapped him right before that debate. Again, since that whole, ah, he said that women can't be president. Um, he's now, again, leading in New Hampshire, and I think he's at 23% in the national polls. That's the highest he's been so far from what I from what I think. I'm pretty sure Warren is still sitting at like 14%. She's not going anywhere. Good. Um, so anyway, so but people have been opening up on Joe Biden, and I think, or not Joe Biden, on Bernie, and I think that part of his recent surge is because of that. I think that he's channeling a lot of the frustration where people are going, this is egregious. You know, the the CNN, the bit, Abby Phillip going out there and, and asking those that horrible line of questioning to him in the debate. And people have been opening up on him, especially the coverage after that, where everything was about how amazing Elizabeth Warren was and what a great debate performance that was for her. And people have been just hammering, hammering at Bernie Sanders. And I think that people are going, this is bullcrap. I mean, that was one of the things I saw. You know, I talked about that in Why I'm Not a Democrat video of, you know, I was somewhat a, a Bernie guy. You know, at first I was like, ah, I think Martin O'Malley, I like him. And then when it was just Hillary or Bernie, I'm like, you know, I, th- I like Bernie. And I was watching people on the Young Turks. You know, one of the few times the Young Turks was saying things that make sense was they're like, the mainstream media is obviously against Bernie and biased towards Hillary, as is the DNC. And I was like, yeah, no, that's obviously true. The email, the leaked emails later, you know, Debbie Washerman Schultz, all that crap. It was totally true that they were biased against Bernie. And I th- and that was one of the things where, and that was when I was a Bernie supporter. I'm like, yeah, screw these guys. Screw the establishment. That's, this is bullcrap, you know, that I, I didn't, I had no concept of media bias until maybe 2015, something like that. Um, and I think that people are now all, there's another wave of people waking up to that and going, okay, it's not just people on the right who say CNN is hacks, NPR is hacks, uh, you know, the Washington Post, New York Times are hacks. They, they, it's not like they love all of the people on the left. They're clearly going against Bernie right now. And I think there's a whole new wave of people waking up to that. And channeling a lot of the frustration, I think, that probably Trump voters or some Trump voters had in 2016, you know, that drain the swamp mentality of screw the establishment, you know. I think that Bernie's channeling some of that rage where people are going, yeah, I don't like Trump and I hate what's happening right now. And so I just am going to be for Bernie because I don't like this this kind of legacy media and these this establishment overlords trying to dictate everything um, because it's bullcrap. And so, and, and I understand that. I think that's why he's gaining in the polls. You know, there's uh, Joe Rogan recently said in, in one of his podcasts that he said he'll probably vote for Bernie in the primaries because he's like, you know, Bernie has been consistent over the years. There's not a lot of dirt you can dig up on him unless you consider, you know, being an open communist dirt, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, but I, but I, th- I understand Rogan's position. I think there's a lot of people that feel that way where they're like, they look at him and go, He's consistent, you know, and I've said that before where I think that Bernie is honest. I I do think he's an honest guy. I think that he's a well-intentioned guy. I think his policies are bad, but 
I do, and that's why I hated seeing what Abby Phillip did to him at CNN. I'm like, Bernie doesn't deserve this. I think his policies suck, but I think he's probably a decent human being generally. Um, and so there's a lot of people seeing that, people like Joe Rogan, going, yeah, I, I, I support Bernie. Of course, that prompts CNN to write this piece talking about the backlash Bernie's getting uh, because he was embraced, or he embraced Joe Rogan, who, quote, has a history of making racist, homophobic, and transphobic comments, end quote. And that makes even more people go, yeah, screw CNN. They're absolute garbage. People like Peter Bogosian, who I respect a lot, you know, saying, yeah, I'm deleting the CNN app. These guys are awful. You know, and there's other people who are just savaging them and saying, yeah, CNN, you suck. You are hacks. And your treatment of Bernie here is totally egregious. You know, and, and again, let's recap just a few of the attacks on Bernie in the last week and a half or so, maybe two weeks. So first, there is CNN uncritically parroting Warren's completely unverified story about Bernie saying, telling her that a woman couldn't be president. Abby Phillip then just basically making that true in her line of questioning that was just so egregious during that last debate. There's all the hit pieces that were written right after that, blaming Bernie for the Democrats losing in 2016 because the party split. Now, that's true, kind of, but they also were putting forward Hillary, who is not a very likable candidate. She just wasn't. Um, there was the backlash again with Joe Rogan saying that he's embracing a transphobe and the Human Rights Commission saying Bernie needs to you know, apologize for embracing Joe Rogan's endorsement. David Frum wrote an article today in The Atlantic called Bernie Can't Win. Just, that's it. Bernie Can't Win. It's like, all right, we're really hiding the ball on that one. Um, the New York Times, in their endorsement piece that they put out last Sunday evening, uh, com literally compared Bernie to, to Trump, said that they're like, oh, we don't need another uncompromising, overpromising, divisive character in the White House. Like, they literally are saying that Bernie was the exact same as Trump. It's like, yeah, that's really going to go over well with all the Bernie bros. And plus, there's, you know, about a million other pieces. You know, it's it's actually hard to keep up with all of the hit pieces going out against Bernie Sanders. And so I totally understand the the surge in support because if this that's where that was me in, you know, 2015, 2016, where I was like, screw this. You know, I just didn't have an understanding of the policies. And so I'm like, yeah, he seems like an honest guy. He seems like a decent guy. And this treatment is totally unjustified. So screw these guys. I'm going to support Bernie. And so I understand. I completely understand the the people who are now going. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna vote for Bernie. So I I think he's a real contender. I think that piece David Frum wrote in the Atlantic is incredibly naive. Bernie totally could win at least the nomination. Now I'm not sure that he would win the the general. And I don't think it's I don't think it'd be good, not just for the country but for the Democratic Party generally if Bernie won the nomination, because that would mean that, you know, Hydra, the, the far left operating within the Democratic establishment, what had finally won and taken over. Um, I don't think that'd be good for the Democratic Party or the country, but uh, he totally could win the nomination. I think these guys are naive, and I, and I understand now why they are so against him, and we'll get to that here in a second. Um, so Elizabeth Warren, her poll numbers are still not good. Uh, despite the establishment and legacy media's best efforts of propping her up. The Des Moines Register, which is like the, the biggest paper in Iowa, keep in mind, Iowa caucuses next Monday, I believe, so a week from today, uh, they endorsed Elizabeth Warren. They said, quote, uh, Warren's competence, respect, 
For others, and status as the nation's first female president would be a fitting response to the ignorance, sexism, and xenophobia of the Trump Oval Office. Now, regardless of whether you agree with that second part of the statement, whenever I read that, like, confidence in that respect for others part, like, well, I guess the Des Moines Register isn't including, you know, Native Americans, her fellow candidates, people with private health insurance, anyone that values the general concept of honesty in the category of the others that she has this tremendous respect for. But, you know, teach their own. That's fine. They're, they're entitled to that opinion. Um, but the, the legacy media, the establishment media, has been trying their darndest to prop up Elizabeth Warren ever since that, right before that debate and after. Again, you know, that, that was where, that's what I'm saying, all the cards are on the table because if you didn't watch that debate and hear Abby Phillips' line of questioning and go, Elizabeth Warren is a hack, she is a liar, and she should no one she should not be in this, she's a horrible human being, then you have a different agenda. And the fact that all of the media afterwards was like, oh, what a great debate performance by Elizabeth Warren, it's like, okay, something else is going on here. And one of the things I said last Sunday was that I was like, I don't understand. I, there is still a missing piece here where I'm like, I can't wrap my mind around why the establishment is supporting Elizabeth Warren, but so opposed to Bernie Sanders. You know, I've mentioned this before. The guy who wrote her economic policy, Gabriel Zuckman, is an actual communist. The dude is authoritarian as all get out. Like, it's insane, the policies he advocates. Her policies are more to the left of Bernie Sanders in a lot of ways. And so I'm like, why would the establishment be propping her up, but be so opposed to Bernie Sanders when their policies are so similar, you know, both of them are saying they want to outlaw private health insurance and just only do Medicare for all as a policy. And I said last Sunday, I'm like, I don't understand it. This, I still, there is something I'm missing here. And last Sunday, the New York Times, when they put out their endorsement, their official endorsement for the presidential nomination, they, they, a light flipped on. They gave me that last piece of the puzzle. I understand it now. So let's talk about it. So the the New York Times puts out their, their their first endorsement of two candidates, right? Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. And well, first in that, they they crap all over Bernie right before that. Again, like I said, they compare him to Donald Trump. But then here's what they say about Elizabeth Warren, all right? And this this is this is the the Rosetta Stone of understanding why the media and why the establishment is propping her up, okay? Listen to this. And by the way, I wrote up, I wrote a piece right after this to kind of explain this. So I'm sorry if you've read, if you already read that, um, but this answers all of it. So this is what the New York Times says about Warren. Quote, Ms. Warren has proposed to pay for an expanded social safety net by imposing a new tax on wealth. But even if she could push such a bill through the Senate, the idea is constitutionally suspect and would inevitably be bogged down for years in the courts. A conservative judiciary also could constrain a President Warren's regulatory powers and roll back access to health care. Carrying out a progressive agenda through new laws will also be very hard for any Democratic president. In that light, voters could consider what a Democrat president might accomplish without new legislation, and in particular, They could focus on the president's wide-ranging powers to shape American society through the creation and enforcement of regulations. End quote. Okay, again, if you've read the piece that I wrote, 
right after this came out. I'm sorry, but do you see what they did there? They're saying so Elizabeth Warren, what what has she been saying? Big structural change. I've got a plan for that. We're gonna push through this thing. We're gonna do this, we're gonna do this. All of this, all this, all the plan, 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 this new law, this new law, all this other stuff, right? What is the New York Times saying here? They're saying her her proposals are constitutionally suspect. They'll be bogged down in the courts. This Trump's conservative judiciary would constrain it. They would also roll back her health care proposals. Carrying out a progressive agenda through new laws, I've got a plan for that, big structural change, new laws, will also be very hard for any Democratic president. In that, lo- in that light, voters would could consider what a Democrat president might accomplish without new legislation. This was the problem all along. I've been taking Elizabeth Warren seriously for her proposals, which is insane, right? Because she lies about everything else. All of her policies she puts forth, she adopted five and a half seconds ago. She stole from Bernie Sanders, and she and she's just catering. It's, it's just catering to the progressives, but she doesn't actually mean any of it. Like, the things she attacks Pete Buttigieg for doing, she did in 2018 for her Senate campaign. She's incredibly dishonest. But for whatever reason, I'd been listening to her policy proposals, her plan for that, and taking her seriously. The New York Times is doing the opposite. They are banking on her not doing any of that. And they are providing a already laying the groundwork for justifying why she, her plan for that was all a bunch of crap. And why her big structural change, oh, it's bogged down by the judiciary, all this other stuff. And, and again, no new legislation. So the New York Times, which you could say, again, is kind of a proxy for, in the same way that the Young Turks, some Huffington Post or Vox, that type of thing, represents more progressive stuff. The New York Times, CNN, NPR is a good proxy for establishment Democrat, uh, mainstream Democrat, old school Democrats. And they're saying, yeah, we are not planning on her doing any new legislation. We're planning on her being exactly who she is in every other area, which is incredibly dishonest. In In other words, the New York Times knows that Elizabeth Warren is more interested in power than policy. She could care less about policy. She just wants power. You know, and the, I'm not saying that's unique to her, but that is just a, a true statement about Elizabeth Warren generally. And so they're like, yeah, let's go ahead and lay the groundwork, put her in there. Here's the other thing. What I talked about last time, and I think maybe the time before that, the emphasis on let's look at the running mates. So if Biden or Klobuchar or someone who is perceived as a moderate gets the nomination, they'll have to have a progressive running mate or else they'll just lose. They just will. Or... They could nominate a fake progressive, Elizabeth Warren, who could have a moderate or another fake progressive running mate, and she'll get in there and govern probably similar to Barack Obama or how Hillary Clinton would have governed. And the establishment gets to kind of have their cake and eat it too and cater to the progressives. Now, I don't think that's sustainable. You know, the progressives, especially the, you know, the real, the true believers, the people, the Bernie Sanders people, the Young Turks, people like... They're like the AOCs, in other words, people that really like AOC, they're not going to be content with just some regulations. Like the the establishment are, are complete idiots if they think that they can contain this, if they can control this or further manipulate the progressive base. Like they think they can control it 
Red Skull is about to bomb the crap out of the Third Reich. Like, Hydra is about to break out. Um, back to the Captain America reference from last week. So I think it's a, I, I don't think it's going to work, but it makes perfect sense. If you, if you look at Elizabeth Warren and say, okay, she's been dishonest about, like, literally everything, and then you look at her policy proposals through the same lens, it makes perfect sense. So that's why I think they're trying to put put her forward. I think that's why the established trying to prop her up. They're just trying to buy time to deal with that. They want to satiate the progressives without actually having a progressive in there. Because here's the deal. Because I was like, what's the difference between Bernie and Elizabeth? Why are they so scared of Bernie and they want Elizabeth? Same policies. She won't do it. He's a true believer. Like Rogan said, he's been consistent. He's been consistently a communist, basically. You know, he ran as independent. He wrote about how the Democrats, you know, were idiots, lacked moral courage, all this other stuff. He doesn't, you know, Jacobin Magazine, the socialist publication, is saying, yeah, he doesn't belong in the same party with Joe Biden. He just doesn't. Him and AOC, they're labor, they're socialists. Let's call it what it is. So, you know, I'm not saying that pejoratively necessarily about Bernie. It's just, that is just true. The, the establishment knows he believes this stuff. He really is going to try and put forward those policies. She won't. So they're going to do everything in their power to try and prop her up and attack Bernie. But it's, you know, it seems like some, you know, pedestrian reverse psychology experiment. It's like, okay, you guys are idiots. You think this is going to work. Elizabeth Warren's incredibly off-putting. And by attacking Bernie, they're doing the same thing. You know, that happened with Trump, I think, in 2016. I was one of the people that I was like, why are you taking this guy seriously? Like, th this guy is an idiot. No one should take him seriously. I mean, I, I would say that all the time. I bartended at the time. A couple of my buddies, when they'd come in, they'd say, what do you think about this Trump guy? And this is right at the very beginning. I'm like, why? No one should take him seriously. This is a clown show. People, they're doing that to Bernie right now. And it's a big mistake because the more they do that, the more it's alienating the people who they need to convince uh, to their side. So I don't think it's going to work, but I think that's why they're putting up Elizabeth Warren. And again, this kind of goes to what I've been saying all along. They know that this is unsustainable. They know that these visions of governance are incompatible. So they want the fake progressive in there because they know if they get the real progressive in there, the defecation is going to hit the oscillation pretty fast. The crap's going to hit the fan. Um, and so they're going to do whatever they can to just keep that monster at bay. Again, I think they're idiots if they think they can control it at this point in time. Um, but I understand what they're doing. So that's what I think is happening there. That's where Elizabeth Warren's at. We'll see what happens in the Iowa caucuses uh, next Monday. That's that's going to be a big, big uh, indicator, a big litmus test for what's happening there. And again, keep in mind... The way the Democrat primaries work is different than the Republican ones. The Republican ones are like states are winner-take-all. The Democrat primaries, it's like you can still walk away with a handful of delegates. And so if you take a handful, you know, in Iowa, in New Hampshire, in Nevada, in South Carolina, and so on, by the time you get to the convention, you could have a couple of people who are totally viable for getting the nomination. So Bernie's totally in this thing. I hope Warren isn't. Uh, and one thing I kind of want to touch on here, it, it kind of relates, you know, I think one reason, again, why the, the establishment, the old school Democrats, and, and whether it's the New York Times or CNN or whatever, any of the people doing all these hit pieces against Bernie, you know, one of the reasons they're doing that is because they deep down, you know, they know, they, they, 
there's some of these policies that they're on board with, but they know that full-scale socialism is an epic fail and it, and it doesn't work. And this is one story, I think, that exemplifies that. You know, I, I read this story, and whenever I put it in here in my notes, I think it was, you know, early in the week last week, I just put the, the header as capitalism is so awful, uh, because this is a story about, you know, why the system we have is the best one uh, that we know of right now. Um, it's It really is. You know, it's kind of like that Winston Churchill quote about democracy. It's the worst form of government except for all the others. You know, capitalism, I think, is and free open market specifically is the worst form of economics uh, except for all the others. Uh, so this is a story. I'll put the full story in there. It's super long. I don't know if CNN maybe had a guest editor. I don't know why they uh, why else they would have written this. Um, but it's about this nonprofit, okay, that was started by a woman named Veronica Scott. It's called the Empowerment Plan, and it, it operates in Detroit, Michigan. It helps the homeless population there. What they do is they hire homeless people who make these heavy-duty, super-cool coats that they then give to other homeless people. Like these coats, heavy-duty, they can be used as a, a tote, a big tote bag, and also as like a full-length sleeping bag. You know, Detroit super cold in the wintertime. So these are potentially life-saving coats for people that are sleeping on the streets. 100% of the homeless people that they've hired for this nonprofit, for this business, this charity, uh, have been able to afford their own homes within a few months of being hired by this uh, private charity, the Empowerment Plan. Um, the program launched with funding generated by the, the woman. She had a blog, and she was talking about what she wanted to do. And she had a link to PayPal, which is a private company co-founded by Peter Thiel. He's a free market entrepreneur capitalist guy, also a gay Republican. The I think it was Advocate Magazine said he wasn't actually gay because he's a Republican. Um, he's just a guy that is sexually attracted to men, but he's not gay because he's on the right. But anyway, so this company launched initially by this woman on her blog with people donating to PayPal, right? Another private company. Carhartt, another private company, catches wind of this, and they say, this sounds cool. They donate a bunch of sewing machines and fabric to this initial, to the empowerment plan to, for this Veronica Scott to get started. So if you've ever like seen a Carhartt coat or worn a car, they're super heavy-duty material. And then they flew her out to show her how they make these heavy-duty coats so she can use the same method in making these sleeping bags, or the, their coats. And uh, they're going to use the sleeping bags and stuff. So Carhartt donates all this stuff. And because of their donations and these donations through PayPal, Verona Scott, Scott is able to start hiring people. So she starts hiring these homeless people. Again, all of them within a few months were able to start. They could afford their own homes as a result of working for this charity. Um, and then the, I'll read directly from CNN because this encapsulates it. Uh, better than any summary that I could give. So, quote, The program is funded through private gifts. Each $125 donation pays for the materials and labor for one coat, and donors can request coats go to specific communities or wherever the greatest need is. Last year, the corporations, a corporation sponsored 2,000 coats, and it went out to 20 different cities, Scott said. So members of our team went all went to all of these communities all over the country. While employees get paid for a full work week, they only spend 60% of their time actually making coats. The other 40% is spent in classes designed to ensure they staff self or they stay self-sufficient after they graduate from the empowerment plan. These classes, taught by volunteers, private citizens, and other organizations including financial or 
taught by volunteers and other organizations include financial literacy, driver's education, GED test preparation, and domestic violence recovery. If not for her financial literacy class, Morgan Elay said she'd probably face a lifetime of bad credit and poor financial decisions. I didn't know that you could that if you get a credit card, you don't just max out your credit card and pay it off. Uh, that and that you're only supposed to spend half or less than half. The 25-year-old said. Now at the empowerment plan, she's learning life skills that she might have never learned, like how to budget her income. She took the financial health class and had $30 in savings of a full week after payday. That was the first time I realized I was saving money, Elay said. It made me feel amazing. I was like, I got $30. Even though it wasn't a lot, it made me feel capable of actually saving more. And I'm ready to do that. So volunteers, donations, they're teaching people who want to learn, who want to work. This is hard work, entrepreneurial spirit. This is the stuff America was founded on. And this is all this private charity. And it, and it ends by talking about this other woman who became homeless, was going to have to go live in a shelter. She gets hired by the Empowerment Plan, quickly rises through the ranks, spends a year and a half learning, going through the program. She then leaves. This woman then starts her own business, like her own clothing line, where she's hiring people. She went from homeless through this thing. Now she has her own business. You know, she's a greedy capitalist with her own business now, with the skills she learned. And so, you know, I say that, you know, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but not really. This is one of the reasons why the establishment is against Bernie, but they're okay with Warren, because they know deep down that stuff's not happening in North Korea or Venezuela or the former Soviet Union or in Cuba or anything like that. They know that the, capital, the capitalist system is the best system we have. And so they want to have in just enough programs, you know, that'll keep some voters happy or make some people feel dependent on them, um, but not enough to actually go full scale because stories like this just don't happen uh, without a free market system. They just don't. So this is super cool. I'll put a link to it in the description. Super cool. that, And I'll put a link to the Empowerment Plans website. What an awesome nonprofit. What an awesome program. And really inspiring stories. You know, I was like, man, this is... With coronavirus and all this other stuff, Kobe Bryant, like, I'm glad to have a feel-good story in here. Uh, okay, so, uh, brief, brief impeachment update before we get to the final thing. So, I'll just be honest, this thing is also a mess. I'll give you my best assessment of where this is at, where it's going, um, but your guess is as good as mine. Uh, although there are some underlying, you know, I think some basic hypothesis we can form about this thing. You know, I was talking to a friend Saturday night and he said, what do you think about the impeachment? What are you going to say in your next podcast? I said, you know, I'll probably say something. <laughs> Thanks, man. Um, I said, I'll probably say something similar to what I've been doing with the Democrat debates, you know, around debate four or five or something. I was like, you know, I, I kind of want to get to the, the, the heart of some of this stuff. There's some underlying principles here. We can talk about Medicare. We can talk about immigration. We can talk about reparations. We can talk about all this other stuff, foreign policy. But are there some deeper things happening in the Democratic Party we can talk about? And that's when I started shifting over to kind of the, the, the truly irreconcilable differences between the progressives on the far left and the, you know, the Bernie, the AOC crowd, and the more moderate you know Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Amy Klobuchar types. And so I, I want to focus on the heart of it. You know, it's like until this stuff is addressed, that other stuff doesn't really matter. And so I kind of want to let's do that with impeachment. There's a lot of surface level stuff. 
And I'll be honest, man, I tried to follow it last week, you know, and I would listen to some headlines. I would watch some some clips. I would watch some of the stuff of Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler and all that stuff. And it just reminded me of any other time that I was watching Adam Schiff go on MSNBC and just say the same thing or go on NPR and say the same thing. Um, yes, uh, that Trump, Netanyahu stuff. For those of you who are watching this later, uh, live stream, yeah, the someone mentioned something about the, the peace plan that Trump has for the Middle East. I'm probably going to talk about that next week. Uh, but yeah, I do want to mention that. Um, anyway, but so I was watching this stuff, you know, them droning on and on. I'm like, I cannot... I can't, I'm not going to listen. The, each side had 24 hours to make their case. The Democrats used over 21 of it. And it was basically like, you know how in those old heist movies where they'll, they'll like loop a thing from the video camera and put it, you know, to trick the security guards or whatever. I really feel like that's what listening to Adam Schiff was last week. It's like, this is his, this is just him on MSNBC for the last three, four months. And what's funny is that Stephen Colbert, that hack, you know, he did a whole monologue about how brave Adam Schiff was, but he's like, Adam Schiff got up there and he gave the greatest hits and he had like a little lighter out like he was at a concert. And he was saying that as like, oh, so awesome hearing him do the greatest hits. And I'm like, yeah, no, it's not the greatest hits. It's the greatest something that rhymes with hits and might uh, be a euphemism for defecation. Anyway, um, but it was just difficult to follow. So I spent all of Saturday, all of Sunday just catching up on this thing. So I'll, I'll kind of tell you where it's at, what to expect, how this John Bolton uh, stuff, what that is and how that may or may not influence it going forward. So here are the main, the heart of it. Here's the heart of the issue. Here's the main questions that need to be answered, no matter how many impassioned speeches Adam Schiff gives. Um, the first one is, are they going to call witnesses? That's where it's been. And again, the, Nancy Pelosi has successfully changed that she has reframed this whole thing she has that's what i said after i mean that was the whole thing i was talking about where she's reframing this thing she's picking a new option just has because that's the main thing that's all we're talking about is calling witnesses and and i mean that's the it is the thing that matters now so good for her for doing that all these people on the right were like oh it's so stupid stupid strategy it's like well we're talking about it aren't we we went from saying well we know how this is gonna go they're gonna Vote on it in two hours, and it's going to be done. Well, not really, because we're talking about witnesses. We're talking about John Bolton. We're talking about Mick Mulvaney. So it worked on some level. So that is the question. Are they going to call witnesses? So the main thing right now with that is, I think there's a good chance they might. So the John Bolton revelation, which is, again, in addition to my daughter keeping us up all night and being just totally exhausted, why I didn't do the podcast last night is, of course, a couple hours, you know, 12, 14 hours before they reconvene this morning, this, all oh, this mysterious leak, oh, it's so not coordinated at all, of John Bolton, his book manuscript talking about, oh, how Donald Trump really did want to tie the, the aid that was going to go to Ukraine to President Zelensky actually announcing an investigation into the Bidens. The Trump defense team had said, that wasn't actually part of it. So now there's a direct contradiction between what Donald Trump has said and what John Bolton is claiming. And, so, and, I, and I think that Trump was silly to do this all along. He should have just went with, I think it might have been Mick Bolvaney that said, yeah, we do this all the time. This is perfectly normal. I mean, I covered this at the time whenever they're talking about quid pro quo. You know, Bernie Sanders was out there campaigning back in December saying, 
yeah, I'm going to hold back aid to Israel unless they change their policies to Palestine. That would be a quid pro quo. That would be a quid pro quo. That'd be a policy that wouldn't be super popular. But that's what he would want to do if he was president. Kind of like maybe an unpopular thing like investigating the Bidens and Burisma and withholding aid unless the president, unless President Zelensky did that. Uh, it's the same thing. That's what the Trump administration should have said. It was like, yeah, this does happen all the time. Yeah, there, there's evidence of corruption. Here's the evidence. But this is what I this is what I think. And so instead, you know, Trump said no quid pro quo, and he so rigidly defined the defense that now that there's this direct contra uh, contradiction with what John Bolton has said, it's a problem. And the, all the Democrats need are four Republicans to peel off. So there's 47 Republicans in this, or Democrats in the Senate and 53 Republicans. They need to peel off four so that there's 51 people to vote for witnesses, and then they can call John Bolton, and then they can call... Mick Mulvaney and whoever else they want to call. Um, so that's the question is, will they call witnesses? Now, I think that there's a good chance they will. I think it was Mitt Romney was saying today that he wanted that to happen. But one of the, some of the math here is, first off, if they do call witnesses, this thing could go on for weeks. It could go on for months. And that has got to be part of the calculation here of how this is going to affect 2020 and the establishment Democrats who are saying that they want witnesses also have to know that by dragging this out, they're going to hurt Bernie Sanders and they're going to hurt Elizabeth Warren and they're going to hurt Amy Klobuchar because they're senators. They're not going to be able to be out there campaigning. Joe Biden's going to have free reign to be out and campaign. Andrew Yang's going to have free reign to be out there campaigning. Um, Pete Buttigieg is going to have free reign to be out there campaigning. But also, Joe Biden's going to get hurt if they call witnesses because if they decide on that, they're going to call Hunter Biden. They're going to call probably Joe Biden. They're going to call, they're probably going to try and call the whistleblower. They're probably going to try and call Adam Schiff. So I, I think that if they do go down this, this path of having witnesses, no one's walking out clean. And the question, the math that the Democrats have to do is, okay, if we think this will hurt Trump, if we think it'll hurt us, who's it going to hurt more? And I don't know if I have an answer for that. You know, I think that there's a good chance that John Bolton's testimony wouldn't change much. Um, but if they call Hunter Biden, if they call Adam, I mean, if they're able to even call Adam Schiff, I don't know if they can or not, then I think there's a good chance it'll hurt the Democrats more than the Republicans. So that's a calculus they have to do. But anyway, the question is, are they going to call witnesses? They have to peel off four Republicans. I think there's a good chance they might. Um, if they don't, if they don't call witnesses after the Republicans are done presenting their defense, they presented all day today. I listened to a little bit of it. Again, it's like, I just, I feel like that, this is a side note, we can put a pin in that, but, you know, C-SPAN and, you know, PBS NewsHour covers this. I just wonder what would happen if someone got up there and said, so this guy's full of crap, what's, you know, and just, you know, kind of like something out of a movie where someone just got up there was just honest and said, this is a bunch of crap, you guys know it, we know it, can we please move on? Um, instead of just giving this big verbose, um, speeches like that like it's something with Al Pacino or something um I just wonder you know if people would resonate to that I think they would but anyway so I, it's difficult to listen to it when the Democrats are up there it's difficult to listen to when the Republicans are up there um but I will give you the cliff notes uh anyway so after that's done they will vote on witnesses we'll see I think it's honestly a coin flip at this point in time and I think that there's actually a decent amount of Republicans who are uh saying I want to wait and see if the the if the White House defense team gives a good enough defense 
to re- refute what John Bolton has said. Um, and if they do that, then they probably won't call witnesses. But if it, do- if it doesn't seem like the White House defense gives a good enough defense of what the actual quid pro quo or refute, sufficiently refutes John Bolton's claims, then I think that there will be some Republicans, especially those in purple districts, who go, yeah, let's, let's, let's have some witnesses. Let's see this thing through. Um, anyway, so we'll see. Uh, all right, so this is the other question. Was there, here's, here's the other part that the Democrats' defense hinges on. So they've said, so just like the Republican defense, or the White House defense was, well, uh, there was no quid pro quo. This wasn't tied to the aid at all, when obviously it was. Um, the Democrats have made the case that there was nothing at all, nothing that needed investigating. That Burisma, pure as driven snow. Hunter Biden, pure as a driven snow. Joe Biden, pure as a driven snow. And that there's literally no other reason. That's what they, ha- I mean, that's the case they have made. And that's the case they have to make. That there's literally no other reason that Donald Trump would want to have an invest, have Ukraine investigate corruption, including the Bidens, other than hurting Joe Biden in 2020. If there's any evidence that there was corruption there, even if it was just of Hunter Biden, if it was just of Burisma, even if it was just of Ukraine meddling in the 2016 election, which they did, then the Democrat case falls apart. So the question of was there corruption worth investigating, that's got legs because there was corruption worth investigating. There was, there's a lot of evidence, especially of, of Hunter Biden. I think that the evidence against Joe Biden, it's a little shakier, and we'll get into that here in a minute. Um, but there's a lot of evidence. And again, like I've said in the past, people forget that Trump and Putin bromance was like a meme during the election in 2016. People were talking about how he's a Russian plant for 20 years. Is Trump a Russian asset? Well, what did Putin and Russia do not that long ago? Again, they annexed this place called Crimea, which was formerly part of Ukraine. So you can see why Ukraine would be looking around going, oh my God, if this guy who's in a bromance with Putin gets elected, what else is Putin going to do? He's going to be able to get away with anything. And so you can see why they would want to work against Donald Trump in 2016. Politico reported on that at the time, and them coordinating with Hillary Clinton's campaign. So all the, all the White House defense has to do is make the case for literally anything else other than uh, just wanting to hurt Biden in 2020 and the Democrat manager case saying that there's nothing worth investigating um, falls apart. So that's got legs to it, to be honest. Um, And again, I think that part of this is, you know, that investigation stuff and where the witnesses thing is confusing to me is they know that Joe Biden's going to get hurt if they call witnesses Republicans control the Senate, and if they if they go down the route of witnesses, Republicans are going to vote majority. Yeah, we're calling these people, and it's not going to be good. No, and they can refuse. People can refuse, but it's not going to be good. So, um, but the question of was there corruption worth investigating? Yeah, I, I think I think there was. I think it's got legs to it. Uh, here's the other one: Is it impeachable to investigate a political rival if there was evidence to do so? That's another part. They're saying. Well, he's investigating a political rival. It would help him if Joe Biden had an investigation put into him that in, that implicates him in corruption with Ukraine. Is that impeachable? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I don't think it is. You know, here's an example. Uh, the Obama administration launched an investigation into the Trump administration and its associates, people like Paul Manafort, during the 2016 campaign when Trump was a candidate. 
that the uh, it was called Crossfire Hurricane. It was an actual investigation into the Trump campaign and potential ties to Russia. Now, I there are people on the right who think that it was there was no reason to do that. I think that they had sufficient evidence to say, yeah, there's this is worth looking at. Um, but they did that, and so you know that's that's where the Mueller investigation, Mueller report comes from. So the Obama administration investigated a political rivals campaign. Was that impeachable? Well, I don't think so. You know, they'd have to make the case that it was okay when Obama did it, and it's not okay if they do that with, the, or if Trump does that with Joe Biden. The other thing there is, it's like, well, if you're running for president, does that mean that every four years you can, or every three, you know, yeah, three to four years, you could just never be investigated on a federal level because it, you know, if you're running for president, it could help the president at the time. You know, that you're just totally immune to any investigation if you're also a candidate. Like, that seems like a silly standard to create. And so, I mean, that is the other question of, you know, what is it impeachable to investigate a political rival if there's evidence to do so? The Obama administration did that with Trump uh, during his campaign. I think that that was justified. Um, now, the way that it, it played out, I think that it turned into something that was probably a little more partisan. But was there evidence at the beginning? Sure, totally. I think that they would have been wrong not to do that. The same thing with, you know, if there's any evidence at all, whether it's of Ukraine meddling in 2016, which there is, or of corruption with Burisma, this company that Hunter Biden is working for, which there is, then is it justifiable to investigate that even if it might hurt Joe Biden? Well, I think that it probably is justifiable, but that's a question they have to answer. Uh, one thing I will say about the, you know, the impact of this on Joe Biden is, you know, I, I don't, and I really, I try to call out both sides on, on stuff and, you know, try to be as unbiased as I can. Um, you know, there's been a lot of the, I understand lawyers are going to do this and that the White House defense has done this and the Republicans doing this and saying that, you know, whenever Hunter was working for Burisma, that's this company in Ukraine, um, is making, you know, 50000 to $80,000 a year, you know, super sketchy. There were people that were doing business with Hunter Biden at the time that stopped doing business with him. They're like, dude, I'm not going to get into this. This Burisma company is shady stuff. Joe Biden at the time told Hunter, you better know what you're doing, you know, when he started working for them. And it was a big enough concern that there were people in the Obama administration that came to Joe Biden and said, "What? you know, this could be a conflict of interest, man. This is concerning. And Joe Biden and or his team basically said, you know, I don't have time for this. Joe doesn't have time to deal with this. And there are a lot of Republicans and people on the right parroting that, that Joe, that his excuse was he didn't have time for that. You know, and it's like, that's a pretty dishonest way to report, you know, the exact circumstances there because he literally didn't have time for it. You know what was happening at that time? Joe Biden's son, Bo, was in the last days of his life. He was literally dying of cancer at the time that all of this was happening. Like he was dealing with his son's end of life care and then mourning his son after that. And Joe Biden's looking at his, you know, non-screw up son, Bo Biden, dying of a brain tumor. And there's people coming to him talking about his screw up son, Hunter Biden. And he's understandably like, yeah, I don't have time for that. And, you know, there are people that could say that, you know, that that's disingenuous or, you know, there's still conflict of interest there. But, you know, honestly, I'll, I'll give Joe Biden the benefit of the doubt there. You know, I, you know, people always say that no parent should outlive their, their children. And, and I can't imagine what Joe Biden was going through at the time. And I know his son, his son, Hunter, 
or not Hunter, his son Bo, that the way that he deteriorated that brain tumor over time really took a toll on his family. And, and Megan McCain has talked about that because her dad, John McCain, went through a similar thing. And that's why she feels so close to Joe Biden is because they both experienced similar things. But it was inverted, right? Joe had it with his son. Megan dealt with it with her dad. And so she's spoken to just how hard that was on Joe Biden, but how he was able to help her deal with the death of her dad as a result. And so whenever Joe Biden says, I was busy, I c I'm not going to deal with this because I'm dealing with my son Bo's end of life care. Yeah, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt on that and say, yeah, you know, unless there is overt evidence that Joe Biden totally knew about Hunter's corrupt dealings in Ukraine, which I think that Hunter was involved in some corrupt stuff in Ukraine. I, unless there's overt evidence other than Joe Biden saying, I don't have time for this because I'm dealing with my son dying, I, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt on that. You know, There are people that are going to disagree with me, maybe say that's naive, but I'm sorry, man. He's dealing with his son's brain tumor. So I, I think that it, it, it doesn't look good because it's his son Hunter, but I'm not sure that he's going to, unless, again, unless we have overt evidence, I think that that, the plausible deniability of my son is dying of a brain tumor, cut me some slack. I, I, I'm, I'm okay with that, to be totally honest. Um, anyway, and I, again, I think it's enough just to talk about Hunter. I think it's just enough because I think that's where it is. Um, and to try and bring Joe Biden to have to deal th with this stuff with his son, Bo, again, I'm, I think it's kind of immoral. And I think that the people on the right who are talking about, well, he said he didn't have time for that. It's like, if you're not including the fact that his son was literally dying at the time, that's that's wrong. And I, I, I don't like that that's how they're talking about that. Um, anyway, so here's the main takeaway. All of that to say, will there be witnesses? Probably, unless the White House defense does a really good job of convincing the Republicans in the Senate, especially those in purple districts, that this stuff with John Bolton, him saying that, the aid was tied to um, the investigation of the Bidens. If they can make that defense pretty well, then then I think that there won't be witnesses. This will be done within a few weeks. If they can't make that defense very well, then there will be witnesses. And this is a jungle. Any your guess is as good as mine. I mean, this is you know that there's that South Park episode talking about the way that Family Guy plots are picked by like manatees with beach balls just pushing ideas into this slot. That, that method would be just as viable of predicting what would happen um, if they start calling witnesses because anyone's, anyone's guess is, is as good as the other. But the one thing I will say is there is a case that the White House defense can make where they say, well, he released the aid. So how, how tied could it have been to the investigation think that I'm not sure that that's going to work for a lot of people because they'll say, well, he released the aid after he started taking heat for this thing. Um, but so I, there is at least a defense there. The other thing is that I'm looking at this going, whether they called witnesses or not, I'm not sure is as pertinent to John, John Bolton, Mick Mulvaney, any of this stuff. I'm not sure it's as relevant and tied to that as it is to the 2020 math. I'm just not sure. I think that both Democrats and Republicans are doing the math and trying to figure out who will be more hurt by witnesses, us or them. If it's them, let's call witnesses. I think both sides are doing that. Uh, and, I, and I don't know. Again, I think that there's a good chance that the Republicans will come out on top, but it's hard to say. Again, your guess is as good as mine. Um, 
the other thing I'll say is that the you know whenever Adam Schiff gets up there and he you know does his closing arguments and he gives this impassioned uh, you know right matters and he you know is very choked up it's very serious um, I increasingly as much as I watch that I'm like my God this is so obvious you know. I'm increasingly like, you know, that's fine if Adam Schiff wants to do that. He can put an onion in his shirt pocket so he gets teared up. That's fine if he wants to do that. What's really starting to piss me off is the media putting forth this like it's legitimate, like it's credible. You know, I watched the, the Don Lemon like, oh, man, can you believe Adam Schiff? The, the courage and getting up there and, you know, he's, you saw him getting choked up, right, guys? You saw that. Oh, my gosh. It's like, Really? Like, this is the same CNN that's putting all these hits out on Bernie. It's like, if people aren't seeing how biased the media are at this point, it's like, your your eyes are closed, man. This is ridiculous. You know, the monologue that I referenced that Stephen Colbert gave earlier was literally titled, Representative Adam Schiff Passionately, Courageously Lays Out the Case Against Donald Trump. Now, Stephen Colbert is not in the same category as Don Lemon on CNN, but the fact that Stephen Colbert is very sincere when he says this, passionate, brave courage that Adam Schiff has is just absurd. You know, and what and what's frustrating is that it seems like, you know, that the media is putting out this idea that there are two sides here. There's these cowardly um, Trump puppets who are just covering up and engaging this corruption on the right, these politically motivated, they're all politically motivated on the right in the Senate, and then there's these completely bi- unbiased truth tellers, uh, these, these moral arbiters on the left, you know, people like Adam Schiff and Jerry Nadler, who have no political uh, motivations here whatsoever in what they're doing. And it's just absurd. You know, and here's, here's how you know that the media has done a good job of parroting all of these things. Remember what I said about that reframing of Nancy Pelosi withholding the articles and to give the media time to disseminate that reframing? The Peak numbers for polling of should the president be impeached and removed from office were from December 19th to January 7th. It was like plus nine in favor of removing Trump from office during that time. That's when that reframing took place. Now, since then, it's evened out back to basically where it was in October when all this stuff started being discussed, which is it's like plus one for no, like not not removing him from office. So, but that's still basically a coin flip. That's 50-50 within the margin of error. But, you know, there are some people who look at that and go, well, it's still 50-50. That just shows how entrenched it is. And I'm like, yeah, but there are people who've been paying attention. Like myself, you can go back and watch. The day that Nancy Pelosi announced this inquiry, I said, if there's evidence there, if there's stuff here, he needs to be removed, period. That's how it is. We have to be true to principles regardless of who it is. And I'm gonna I'm gonna hold judgment until there's evidence. But I said if there is an evidence and this looks like the Mueller report 2.0, then it's gonna be bad for the Democrats. But I said I'm gonna withhold judgment until we see the evidence. And you know that's what I did, and I've been honest about that. But as this has unfolded, and it's you know more and more, it's looked like yeah, this is a partisan hit job. There was partisan in the House. It was a, it was totally partisan. It was a, a complete clown show media circus, and then in the Senate saying, oh, well, now we want it to be very fair, and we want to do all these things that we didn't, we want to subpoena all these people in the Senate that we did in the House. As I've watched this unfold, it has, the legitimacy of it has dropped precipitously. 
Um, even though I really have been trying to give it a fair shake from the very beginning, because that's what you have to do if you want to adhere to principles. You do it even whenever it's inconvenient. Um, but the fact that the numbers haven't really changed, I look at that and go, why haven't the numbers went down? Why hasn't, how come the longer this has went on, people haven't gone, okay, this is insane, and the the support for it's declined. So the fact that it's remained pretty much even, even though the evidence has more and more been like, yeah, this is ridiculous, tells me that the media has been doing a pretty good job of parroting all that stuff, you know, and it's all partisan political theater. Um, and part of that is like, you know, fact checking, you know, I get on NPR's website as I'm preparing for this and they have this fact checking tab. It's our new fact checking, uh, series that we're doing. And every single fact check article is on Republicans on NPR. Again, I, again, I select people like NPR and CNN because they are considered, uh, there's people that still think that they're neutral truth tellers. And this is obviously not true. Um, you know, all of that CNN, whenever the Democrat uh, impeachment managers, Adam Schiff, Jerry Nadler are up there delivering their case, it's Don Lemon, it's Chris Cuomo, it's uh, Anderson Cooper and Wolf Blitzer up there like, oh, this is what they said and how, how courageous. So I feel like they made a really good case and all this other stuff on Saturday when the Republicans get up there and spend a couple hours laying out some opening arguments. Literally the very first article that CNN puts out says, quote, fact-checking opening statements from Trump's legal team. It's like, we're not going to fact-check whenever the Democrats are up there, but when the Republicans are up there, we're going to fact-check it. Again, they can do that if they want, but it's just like, it's so obvious, so obvious to me. Um, and, and that's what frustrates me. Adam Schiff can be Adam Schiff. Mitch McConnell can be Mitch McConnell. Jerry Nadler can be Jerry Nadler. Donald Trump can be Donald Trump. They're all politicians. And so I'm increasingly giving latitude even to politicians that I find frustrating like Adam Schiff, because, you know, they all do it. They all do it. Um, but it's the media that's really starting to piss me off, to be honest, um, as, as if I was already very sanguine towards them. Um, fa here's a fact check. Uh, I wasn't. 